0: Thank you so much for uh, choosing to worship with us today. Uh, We're blessed to have you, blessed to open our hearts through song and prayer in worshiping the Lord. And now to open our hearts and to hear from him as he speaks to us through his word. And let me have you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28, Matthew chapter 28. We're going to be looking at a number of passages from the New Testament uh, this morning, and we'll begin in Matthew chapter 28. The title of the message is The Ordinance of Water Baptism. The Ordinance of Water Baptism. This is essentially a topical message uh, covering uh, this topic. We have a young man who is going to be baptized this morning in the courtyard, Uh, behind me um, after the service today, so we figured this would be as good a Sunday as any to put this topic before our congregation uh, once again. You know, growing up in the church, as I have all my life and being a pastor over the last uh, 28 years, I've, I've seen and I have participated in in a number of baptisms over the 55 years of my life. My baptizing career uh, started with baptizing Mo Roberson uh, 28 years ago at the YWCA Uh, and my baptismal career has extended as far as the Jordan River in Israel where I had the privilege of baptizing Gordon Bournes uh, several uh, years ago. Uh, Beyond that, I've witnessed many baptisms over the years, and my life is richer for having viewed all of them. From a purely mechanical uh, standpoint, most of the baptisms that I have witnessed have gone well. (laughs) But I have also seen a few of them go poorly. I've seen people step into baptismal waters that were so cold that they forgot their testimony. Or they've said something like, my life verse is, and they forgot their life verse because the water was so cold. I witnessed baptism when I was a teenager uh, where a man obviously had a phobia about being submerged in water. And he would not let the pastor put his head beneath the water. Uh, The baptism started off normally enough In front of this congregation, the man professed his faith in Christ and he seemed pretty calm. But when the pastor began to lay him back into the water, the man panicked and would not let his head go under the water. So the pastor stood him upright and calmed the guy down and then tried to lay him back into the water again. And the man did the same thing. He panicked and he was clutching the sides of the baptistry with white-knuckled intensity to keep his head from going underneath the water. Uh, Ultimately, the pastor made three attempts to get that man's head under the water, and each time the man refused to allow his head to be submerged. So eventually, the pastor gave up and jokingly said, I guess he'll go to heaven, all except for his head. So if you see a headless guy walking around heaven, you'll know that's the guy I was talking about. Of course, I'm joking. Uh, at our home church in Indiana, uh, I witnessed a lady who wore a wig being baptized on one occasion. Uh, the baptistry uh, that was being used had a facade uh, so you could see the top 12 inches of Uh, Water from the pews where we were seated. And when the pastor laid this woman back into the water, her wig came off and began to float away from her. Uh, Amazingly, our pastor saw what had happened. He kept her submerged an extra second or two, and holding her with his right hand, he reached over with his left hand and grabbed the wandering wig and put it on her head as he lifted her out of the water. It was a breath-stopping moment for us as a congregation, but we all admired how our pastor uh, saved the day. Uh, the worst baptismal disaster that I have ever uh, seen was caused by me back in 2011 when we were at the Linden Street uh, property Just after midnight, uh, Sunday morning, I started the water running in the baptistry in order to fill it up and have it prepared for a baptism we were doing the next day. Long story short, I put the knob on the wrong setting, and I went downstairs to my office to do a couple hours of sermon prep. And around 2 in the morning, I walked out of the office area uh, to head upstairs to just check on the water level. And as I walked out of the office lobby, to my horror, I looked to the right, and there was water pouring out underneath the doors of the downstairs Sunday school rooms. I can't begin to describe for you the panic That I felt. I ran upstairs as quickly as I could and saw that the baptistry had overflowed. Water was falling like rain from the ceiling of the youth uh, Sunday school room behind the auditorium and then was flowing down from there into three of the Sunday school rooms below. And the water was just beginning to creep into the auditorium. Well, I obviously turned the water off. Uh, and then work through the night in scooping water out of the rooms together with my wife, who I called frantically, and she came. um, She showed up with a couple towels. (laughs) uh, But I appreciated her help. Uh, She worked with me through uh, the night uh, as we tried to get water out of the room. Some Sunday school classes had to meet elsewhere, I think one of them met in a home that, that morning, but we were able to have our morning service, and we were able to do the baptism that was scheduled for that morning. And here's a picture of me and the girl that we baptized that Sunday morning. Uh, this is her along with me next to her after getting no sleep the night before. <laughs> During a night such as I had on that evening, in September 2011, one might be tempted to ask the question, why all the trouble? Why go through all of this trouble to baptize people? Well, there are many answers to that question, some of which we will see uh, this morning. The truth is that water baptism is kind of a messy and humbling ritual anyway, Even when everything goes beautifully, you take someone who is all put together and then you dunk them under the water and have them coming up, sopping wet in front of an audience of people. Why do we do that? Well, we do it because we see it taught and modeled for us in the New Testament. And with the time that we have this morning, I want us to just try to make six observations about this ordinance of water baptism that we see presented throughout the New Testament. Six observations that we'll make regarding this ordinance. Observation number one is water baptism is a commanded ordinance. It's commanded and there's actually two sides to this coin. Uh, On one side, we see in the New Testament that the church is commanded to baptize. In the Great Commission, in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus speaks to his disciples who represents uh, all true believers in Christ's church of every age, and he says in verse 18 and following, "'All authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth,' Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So Jesus commands his disciples to make disciples, and tied to that command, he commands them to baptize those new disciples. And notice how his command is tied to his authority. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples baptizing them. The idea of water baptism is not just some idea that is being floated by a peer here. This is a directive coming from the Lord of heaven and earth. As Donald Whitney says, even if there were no other reasons to do so, we should baptize because the king of the universe has commanded it. But in addition to seeing the church being commanded to baptize in the New Testament, we also have a number of examples in the new testament of new converts who are commanded to be baptized in acts chapter 2 verse 38 Peter speaks to his audience and says repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ in acts 10 Peter observes how Cornelius and his household have believed in Jesus so in verse 48 we're told that he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. That word translated ordered is the word used to speak of a command coming from a general to the soldiers who are under him. Peter commands this. In Acts 22, verse 16, Ananias is talking to Saul of Tarsus, who later became Paul, and says, Now why do you delay? Get up. And be baptized, he says. So all in all, we see in the New Testament that the ordinance of water baptism is commanded. The church is commanded to baptize, and believers in Jesus are commanded to be baptized. It is not, therefore, an option, but something that is commanded from the Lord. But from a mechanical standpoint, what is water baptism? Is it maybe just sprinkling a little bit of water on someone's head? Or is it dunking someone completely under the water? Well, this leads us to the second observation that I think we can legitimately make as we read through our New Testaments, and that is that water baptism is done by immersion. By immersion. If you're one of those people who likes to know Greek words that are used in the Bible, then go ahead and get your pen out and write this down. The Greek word that is translated baptize in the New Testament is baptizo. Baptizo, and this word means to plunge or to sink or to immerse or to dip. And actually, there's two words that we find in the New Testament that are related, that are related to baptism. The word "baptō" and the word "baptizo." And if you want an idea of how this term was used back in this day, there's actually an example of a Greek physician and poet named Nicander, who lived near the city of Ephesus, about 15 miles from Ephesus about 200 years before Christ. And in one of his writings, he's explaining how to pickle a vegetable. And in his explanation, he says that to pickle a vegetable, you should first take the vegetable and babtoe that vegetable in boiling water. And then he says that the vegetable should be baptized into a vinegar solution to soak for a period of time. And the meaning there is absolutely clear. This is the way this term was used. It speaks of immersion, and this is the way people use this term in this day. But beyond that, we also see language in the New Testament surrounding baptisms that are consistent with the idea of immersing someone Into the water. Uh, For example, in Mark chapter 1, we're told about the ministry of John the Baptist, and we're told in verse 5 that people were being baptized by him in the Jordan River. Even more revealing is the language used regarding John's baptizing of Jesus. We're told in verse 10 that Jesus literally was baptized by John into the Jordan, And we're also told that after the baptism, the text says immediately coming up out of the water, he, Jesus, saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. So the language here makes it clear that Jesus went into the water in order to be baptized, and he was baptized into the Jordan, and then he came up out of the water when he was done. Language very consistent with the idea of immersion. In Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian eunuch wants to be baptized, and we're told in verse 38 of Acts chapter 8 that they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he Baptized him. So again, the language here is consistent with what we would expect with the idea of immersing someone into the water and baptizing them. I don't want to spend a lot of time uh, on this issue because the mode of baptism is not one of the most important doctrines. It's definitely not a hill to die on, but it does have some importance and some meaning especially given the fact that immersion provides i think the best picture of what baptism represents in Romans chapter 6 verse 4 the apostle paul tells us that we have been buried with him meaning with christ through baptism into death and then he speaks of us being raised like christ to walk in newness of life And so the image of lowering someone down into the water and then lifting them from the water seems to best fit the reality that Romans chapter 6 is teaching us that baptism is intended to convey. So we've learned so far that baptism is commanded. We've seen that it involves immersion into water. But what about the timing of baptism In relation to a person believing in Christ, well, this leads us to a third observation that we can make regarding water baptism in the New Testament, and that is that water baptism happens in the New Testament shortly after one believes in Christ. It comes after someone believes in Jesus and seems to come pretty quickly after a person believes in Christ. This is the consistent pattern that we do see in the New Testament. Belief in Christ comes first, followed by baptism, and the baptism happens pretty shortly after belief in Christ. In Acts chapter 2 verse 41, there's thousands of people who responded positively to the gospel preaching of Peter, and notice what they did right away. The text says, "So then those who had received his word were Baptized, They received the gospel that he preached and then they were baptized that very day, Luke says. In Acts chapter 8, we see Philip preaching the gospel to the people of Samaria. And in verse 12, we read the following. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ... They were being baptized, men and women alike. Notice the language there. When they believed, they were baptized. In Acts 8, we see Philip explaining Isaiah chapter 53 to the Ethiopian eunuch. And listen to Luke as he tells us what happens verse 35 and Philip opened his mouth and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. And as they went along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look water, what prevents me from being baptized? That's verse 36. Some of your translations, if you have the ESV or the NIV, go straight from verse 36 to verse 38 and there's no verse 37 in your translations but some of your translations have verse 37 sandwiched in between verse 36 and 38 because some Greek manuscripts do have these words that I'll read to you then Philip said if you believe with all your heart you may you may be baptized And he, the Ethiopian, answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Then observe what happens in verse 38. And he, Philip, ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. So, whatever translation you are reading from, what is clear is that the Ethiopian eunuch hears Jesus being preached. He believes the truth of the gospel about Jesus, and then he's baptized that very day. Perhaps baptized just minutes after professing faith in Christ. In Acts chapter 16, there's a woman named Lydia who hears the gospel being, being preached by the apostle Paul and his companions, and observe what the text says in verses 14 and 15 of Acts 16. The text says, "'And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul, and when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, "'If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay.'" So in the sequence of events here, we see that Paul speaks the truth about Christ to Lydia. We then see Lydia's heart being opened by the Lord. We then see her responding favorably to what Paul was preaching. And then she gets baptized that very day. Later in Acts 16, the Philippian jailer comes to Paul and Silas, and says in verse 30, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. In other words, they're saying to the jailer, If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and if the people of your household believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. That's their message. It's not just a message for the jailer, but also for the members of his household. And observe what Paul and Silas do next. Verse 32, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. They're preaching the gospel to this jailer and to the members of his household. Verse 33, and he, the jailer, took them, Paul and Silas, that very hour of the night, and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. So the jailer and the members of his household believe, and then they're baptized that very night. And the time period between their salvation, the moment of belief in Christ, and the moment of their baptism was whatever the length of time it took for the jailer to wash Paul and Silas's wounds. But they were baptized the very hour of faith, essentially. This is pretty much the pattern that we see in the New Testament. A person believes in Christ and then they're baptized after believing and very soon after believing. This observation should be instructive for all of us, and it should challenge us not to dilly-dally when it comes to getting baptized after believing in Christ for salvation. If you have believed in Jesus for salvation and you claim him as your Lord and Savior, I would urge you, do not delay in being baptized. That said, as challenging as this may be in a good way, the pattern that we're seeing in the New Testament may leave some of you feeling embarrassed and condemned that you have not been baptized yet. Uh, Perhaps you believed in Jesus years ago, and you just never got baptized, and maybe now you're feeling embarrassed. Maybe you have thought about it from time to time, and you're feeling it especially now, feeling embarrassed over the fact that you have been so slow to get baptized. Well, my question to you this morning is not so much, why have you waited so long? My question is simply, how quickly will you respond now? to the truth you've heard today. If you believed in Jesus and if you believe that he commands you to be baptized and if you see swift obedience to his command being practiced by the early church, then you have opportunity right now to be swift in your obedience to Jesus. Will you swiftly obey Jesus and be baptized in obedience to his command? One thing I do know for sure is that it's never too late to be baptized if you are a believer in Jesus. The one thing you never want to do is to refuse to be baptized because you're ashamed over having waited so long. That's pride, and that kind of pride is very unbecoming for a born-again child of God. The consistent pattern that we see in the New Testament is of water baptism happening pretty quickly after belief in Jesus Christ. And speaking of this pattern, there's something else that we see a few times in the New Testament that's going to lead me to the next observation that I want to give you. But this observation should come with a warning. Some of you will not like the wording of this point initially, but it's actually a beautiful point of observation that we ought to make if we're being honest, I think with the text of scripture and this point of observation will help us in understanding and appreciating passages that often get neglected by Christians in our circles. Here's the observation observation. Number four, water baptism and salvation can sometimes be virtually simultaneous. Now, hang with me and give this point a chance. We're just making an observation of something that we see in the New Testament. We've already seen people in the New Testament being baptized the very hour that they have believed in Jesus. But there's also examples in the New Testament of baptisms happening even quicker than an hour to the point where some people, it seems, were actually standing in the baptismal pool the very moment when they called on the name of the Lord for salvation. And then they were baptized immediately after calling upon the name of the Lord in the waters of baptism. One example of this is Acts chapter 2, verse 38, which is a hugely significant passage on baptism. Some people use this passage to teach baptismal regeneration. In other words, they use this passage to teach that water baptism is necessary for salvation and that a person is not saved until he has undergone water baptism. Perhaps you've met people who believe this. Every once in a while, you'll see a car with a bumper sticker that says Acts 2.38. That's not just a random Bible verse that someone wanted to put on the bumper of their car. If you ever see that bumper sticker on a car, it means that the driver believes that you must be baptized to be saved. And they believe that Acts 2.38 obviously teaches that. And obviously, we don't believe that. At the same time, I've seen people in our theological circles do a lot of gymnastics with Acts 2.38 to explain this passage away so that it doesn't clash with our theology. And some of those treatments of this verse have felt really strained to me. So let's take a a couple moments to look at this text and we'll try to let it speak for itself. And I hope you'll see that this is a fair treatment of the passage. Keep in mind, guys, that Peter has been preaching an extensive message. He has just preached to his audience the truth about Jesus Christ. And he's told his audience in Acts chapter 2, verse 21, that, he's quoting from Joel the prophet... It shall be that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And the Greek word translated calls upon is epikaleo, epikaleo, which means kaleo means call. Epi is a preposition that means upon. Epikaleo means to call upon. Upon. So Peter is making it clear that calling upon the name of the Lord is what brings a person salvation. Yet after hearing Peter continue on preaching the truth about Jesus Christ, the people in his audience are pierced in their hearts and they say to Peter, what shall we do? They want to know what they now need to do in light of the fact that this Jesus whom they have crucified has now been shown to be God's Messiah. They're mortified over the thought that they killed God's Messiah, whom God has now raised from the dead. Well, Peter has already given them the answer to this question. He's already told them that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved But look at his answer to their question in Acts 2, 38. And I'm gonna give you a literal translation of this verse that reflects the root meanings of the prepositions that we find in the text. Peter says to his audience, repent and let each of you be baptized upon, that's the preposition epi, upon the name of Jesus Christ into the forgiveness of your sins And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, from the look of this, it sure sounds like Peter is commanding his audience to be baptized in order to obtain the forgiveness of their sins and to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And in a way, he is doing that. But don't panic. Look closely at what he is saying. Notice this preposition upon, which again translates the word, epi, that we saw in verse 21. This is actually the only time in the New Testament where this preposition epi is used in any kind of baptismal formula. Usually other prepositions are used to speak of being baptized in the name of Jesus or into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But here Peter uses epi. He uses the word upon. And I think the reason he does so is because he's already quoted from the prophet Joel saying it shall be that everyone who calls epi upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And given this fact, all we need to do to represent the spirit of what Peter is saying in Acts 2.38 is to paraphrase what he's saying to his audience as this. We can read it this way. Repent and let each of you be baptized while calling upon the name of Jesus Christ into the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Understanding the text in this way, we would realize that Peter is delivering something like an altar call here. He's calling upon his listeners to come forward and to step into the waters of baptism and then while standing in the waters of baptism to pray and to call upon the name of Jesus Christ and to be saved after which point they would immediately be baptized. In the verses that follow, we learn that 3,000 people took Peter up on his invitation, which means that they would have come forward they would have one by one taken their place in a pool of some sort. And while standing in such a pool, they would pray and call upon the name of the Lord and then immediately thereafter be baptized. And the net result of all this is that their experience of calling upon the name of the Lord and being baptized were virtually simultaneous events. Does that feel weird to you? Maybe a little bit. But if you feel weird about this, consider what happens to the Apostle Paul, who was called Saul at the time of this happening in Acts chapter 22. Jesus had confronted Saul on the road to Damascus and struck him blind. Saul ended up having to be led by the hand. From there to the house of a man named Judas. Jesus then sends Ananias to Saul, and Ananias comes in and meets Saul and says, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And he receives his sight. And then shortly thereafter, Ananias speaks to Saul and says in Acts chapter 22, verse 16, Now why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling upon his name. Epikaleo, calling upon his name. Get up, be baptized, wash away your sins, calling upon his name. You see what he's saying there? He's literally telling Saul to be baptized and to get his sins washed away while calling upon Jesus' name. And Saul would have given heed to This call from Ananias, he would have stepped into some pool of water together with Ananias. And while standing in that water, he would have called upon the name of Jesus for salvation and had his sins washed away. And then he immediately would have been baptized. And the net result is that Saul's baptism would have happened about five seconds after he cried out to Jesus and called on his name for salvation. The moment of Saul's salvation and the moment of his baptism were almost simultaneous. I think this is part of why Peter can speak to his readers the way that he does in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. Having just spoken in chapter 3, verse 20 about how Noah and his family were brought safely through the water on the ark during the great flood, Peter can then say in verse 21 to his readers, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. What does he mean by that statement? Is he saying that water baptism saves a person? Well, let's let Peter answer that question. He seems to know that what he has just said could be misunderstood to mean that it's the water of baptism that saves. So he continues and says, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What he's saying here is it's not the baptismal waters touching your skin that saves you, but it's what you did in the baptistry that saves you. And what did his readers do in the waters of baptism? They made an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, they cried out to God. This is another way of saying calling upon the name of the Lord. They cried out to God, asking him to save them and to make their conscience clean through Jesus Christ, who died and shed his blood to give them atonement and who was then raised to life after his death on the cross. All in all, it seems that many of Peter's readers traced their conversion experience back to the moment when they stood in water, the waters ultimately that would be the waters of baptism, and from that location they cried out to the Lord to save them, just as Saul of Tarsus is described as doing in Acts 22, and just like people are described as doing on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. The important thing for us to realize here, guys, is that it, it's calling upon our saving, powerful Lord who died and was raised. It's calling upon him in faith that serves as the catalyst for salvation. And a person can be anywhere when they call upon the name of the Lord for salvation. They can be standing on a sidewalk. They can be standing in their house. They can be standing in a pool of water when they call upon the Lord. And God will hear their cry and save them, right? If someone's standing in a baptismal pool and prays for God to save them through Christ, would God say, nope, you got to get out of the water? If you want me to hear that prayer, no, he will answer that cry, whether someone is standing in water or out of water, because he's a saving, gracious Lord. And it just seems like in the New Testament that there were times where baptism, the baptismal pool was the location where people prayed and called upon the name of the Lord. But having observed this to be true, we have to be extremely careful and note that this was not the universal experience of all those who were saved by God in the New Testament, which leads us to a fifth observation that we should make regarding water baptism in the New Testament. Number five, water baptism is not a prerequisite for salvation. And you can add, and the waters of baptism are not the necessary location for salvation either. We see the truth of this in several passages, one of which is in Luke chapter 18. Jesus is speaking of a tax collector who came to the temple and prayed and says in verse 13, God be merciful to me, the sinner. That's all the man did. He knows there's a God, he knows he deserves God's wrath. For his sin, he confesses his sinfulness and says, God, be propitiated to me, the sinner. Be merciful to me, the sinner. That's all he does. And in verse 14, Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified or righteous. That's it. It's all the man says. And he's not even standing in a baptistry. And Jesus says he went home a saved man righteous before God. One could also, if they wanted to, point to the example of the thief on the cross, who while being crucified next to Jesus, realizes the truth about Jesus, and he looks at Jesus and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom, and Jesus says in verse 43 of Luke 23, today you will be with me in paradise. Most compelling of all, though, consider the story of Cornelius in Acts 10. Peter, long story short, goes to Cornelius' house, and he finds Cornelius and all of his household and friends gathered together, ready to hear the gospel from Peter. Peter then begins to preach to them and tell them about Jesus. He tells them how Jesus was put to death by hanging upon a cross He tells them how God raised Jesus from the dead on the third day. He tells them how Jesus is the one who's been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. He tells them that it is of Jesus that all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. And notice that word believes. Cornelius and his family... Are on the edge of their seats, ready to do whatever needs to be done in order to receive the forgiveness of sins. And now they know they need to believe in him and that's it. And they will receive the forgiveness of their sins. Then we read these words in verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, He's not even done with this sermon yet, guys. He probably had a killer conclusion to his message that he was excited to deliver to them. But he can't even get to the conclusion while he was still speaking. These words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message, and all the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out upon the Gentiles also. For they, the Jewish believers with Peter, were hearing them speak with tongues and exalting God. Think about what's happening here. No one has been baptized yet. No one's even standing in a baptistry, yet they are clearly saved and showing signs of receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit after believing in the truth about Jesus, right? So observe how Peter responds. Does, does he say, well, clearly they're not saved yet because they haven't been baptized, so we need to baptize them in order to get them saved? Is that what he does? No, look at the end of verse 46 and what follows. Then Peter answered, surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have already received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Peter observes that these people have received the Holy Spirit the same way Peter and his Jewish brethren did on the day of Pentecost. In other words, he observes that Cornelius and his household are saved already and they haven't even been baptized yet. So he orders them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Some people took issue with him for baptizing These Gentiles. So in the next chapter, he has to go before the Jerusalem elders and defend himself. And in the next chapter, in Acts chapter 11, verse 17, Peter defends his decision to baptize them by saying, If God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us after believing in the Lord Jesus, who was I that I could stand in his way? Who was I to refuse to baptize these people who had received the Holy Spirit after believing and prior to their baptism? So the sequence is this. Cornelius and his household heard the preaching of the gospel. They believed in the Lord Jesus. They then received the Holy Spirit. They then immediately show fruit of salvation by exalting God in praise And then Peter is left with no choice but to baptize them because the evidence of their salvation was so overwhelming. Does that make sense? We're left learning something important here about baptism. We learn here that baptism evidently is not a requirement for salvation. We learn that the baptismal pool is not the necessary location for calling on the name of the Lord and being saved. But we do learn here, guys, that baptism is important. And we learn that born-again believers should be baptized after believing in Jesus and experiencing salvation and showing evidence of salvation. Just a quick word to our younger children who are in this room. You may be... Let's say eight years old and you have believed in Jesus. You've prayed and asked him to be your savior. And perhaps you are wishing that you could be baptized and you're wishing that your parents would allow you to be baptized. Uh, This is a wisdom issue and parents handle this in different ways. And we respect that. But to you as an eight-year-old or whatever your age is, my best counsel to you is to trust your parents, to be patient, and to let God continue to work in your heart. Ask God to produce the fruit of salvation in you so that in time, the fruit of salvation in your life will be so obvious that your parents one day will be left with no other choice but to get you baptized. Well, having observed what we've observed thus far, we're left with a final question to answer about water baptism. If baptism is not required for salvation, then what purpose does it serve This leads us to the sixth and final observation that we can make regarding water baptism in the New Testament. Let's word it this way. Water baptism is a creedal and experiential confession of gospel truth. Guys, water baptism is a public statement before God and before men. Let me give you four statements that a person being baptized is making First of all, through baptism, a person is saying, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ who has believed in him for salvation. And we have observed this from all of the passages that we have looked at thus far. A person being baptized is announcing to the world that they could not save themselves, but they have looked outside of themselves to Jesus for salvation. They're not being baptized in their own name or in anyone else's name, but in the name of Jesus, who is their one and only Savior. He's the one that they have believed in. They're being baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the three members of the triune Godhead who were each involved in bringing about their salvation. In being baptized, a person is baptized boasting about Jesus, about God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and saying, if you want to know where my salvation has come from, look to them. They saved me, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Secondly, through water baptism, a person is also saying to the world, I have been buried and risen with Christ to walk in newness of life. My life is changed, is what they're giving testimony to, radically changed. The old is buried, and I've now been risen with Christ to walk in newness of life. In Romans 6, Paul is speaking to Christians. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised up from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. When a person is baptized, the person baptizing them lowers them into the water until they are submerged, representing their death to their old way of life, and then hopefully... The person baptizing will bring them up out of the water to represent the fact that a resurrection has already occurred. They have been raised in Christ to walk now in a totally different way of life. And a person being baptized is giving testimony to this just through the symbolism of the baptism itself. A third statement a person is making by being baptized is is I now live to obey Jesus. In fact, the act of baptism, it's not something we made up. The act of baptism in and of itself is an act of obedience because Jesus commands us to be baptized. So through being baptized, a person being baptized is saying, Jesus is my Lord. I do what he says. And he tells me to be baptized and I am publicly taking the step of obeying my Lord by undergoing baptism a fourth statement that a person being baptized is making we can word this way through being baptized the individual is saying i'm casting my lot with the church of jesus christ and its people he's saying i'm with them i'm with jesus christ and with his people in the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 13, Paul says, "By one Spirit we were all baptized into one body." This is speaking about spirit baptism. The Spirit when someone has believed in Jesus baptizes that individual into the body of Christ, making them a member of Christ's body, which is the church. That happens at the moment of conversion, and water baptism serves as an external symbol of that reality that has already taken place. This is actually part of the reason, guys, that we don't see any self-baptisms happening in Scripture. No one baptizes themselves. Saul of Tarsus had to wait three days for a guy to show up, to baptize him. It's always a member of Christ's church who baptizes the new convert. Baptism is designed by God to be a communal act where the church recognizes a person as a true believer in Jesus, and the person being baptized is willing to wait for that recognition and then be baptized by a believing member of Christ's church. Just in the act of being baptized by a believer in Jesus is communicating volumes, where the person being baptized is saying, I'm with the church, I'm with Jesus and his people. So these are the four statements that the person being baptized is making. They're saying, I believe in Jesus. I've died and been raised with Christ to walk in newness of life. I live to obey Jesus, and I'm with him and with his people. And if you are not able to make those declarations this morning, I plead with you, even right now, to put your trust in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross to shed his blood, to make atonement, For your sins, who was raised from the dead by the power of almighty God, call upon him, call upon Jesus, call upon his name. Quit calling upon your own name. Or the names of good deeds that you have done, quit listing those things off and look to Jesus and to him alone. Be joined with him in his death and in his resurrection and let the spirit baptize you into The body of Christ, which is the church of the living God, and then obey the Lord in undergoing the waters of baptism as a testimony to the truth of all of that. This morning, after our service is dismissed, we're going to be conducting a baptism in the courtyard, a young man named Long Fan. Has put his trust in Jesus for salvation and he has requested to be baptized. Since we've moved to the Bournes facility five years ago, we've not had use of a baptistry uh, here on Sunday morning. So virtually all of our baptisms have been taking place in the context of our care groups, which has had a certain beauty about it that we've really enjoyed and appreciated. Uh, We've always tried to be careful to announce those baptisms and show you pictures of those baptisms uh, in our morning service in order to keep this ordinance before you. Today, though, is our first stab at trying to do a baptism on a Sunday morning uh, here at Bourne's. And I want to give a shout out to Sandals Church. Uh, They have been very kind to allow us the use of one of their portable... Uh, baptistries, and we're very grateful to them for their kindness to us. I texted Matt Brown uh, on Friday and just thanked him for the kindness of his people towards us. Uh, we're also grateful for uh, how the Bournes team has worked with us in making uh, this possible, and we're learning as we go, but we're going to be doing a baptism as soon as this service is dismissed uh, this morning. Mike, is it true, do we have uh, written copies of his story on the table in the back. So you can get a, a, a written copy uh, with even some extra details beyond what he shared uh, on the, the table in the back of the auditorium. But let's join our hearts in prayer and just praise him for his goodness. Lord, we thank you uh, so much for uh, your word, your saving word through uh, Jesus Christ Uh, We thank you, Lord, that you have provided a ladder for us to be able to reach you, and you are the ladder. Jesus is the ladder. We thank you for sending your Son into the world so that we might have salvation through him. Help us, all of us, Lord, not to depend upon our feelings or that we think our repentance needs to look a certain way or reach a certain standard, but may we see the bankruptcy of our lives and even the bankruptcy of our repentance, the bankruptcy of anything within us that we would depend on and put our full confidence and trust in you, Jesus. And thank you for being a Savior who saves all who cry out to you for salvation. You're a good Lord. And we praise you this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to give of our offerings to you. Receive what we give in this offering here in the coming moments, Lord, and do much with all that is given for the glory of the Lord Jesus and the spread of this message of salvation through him. And at the same time, Lord, we we give ourselves to you. We pray for our brother Long, just ask for your flourishing, your blessing upon his life as he grows in you as a disciple of Jesus and pray, Lord, that you would strengthen him, use us to be a blessing to him, and use him in a mighty way to touch thousands of lives for your glory. So we give ourselves our joy, our praise, and our offerings to you in the name of the Lord Jesus and all God's people said.